welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Fred Oswald. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. So Fred, do you know Scott? Maybe I should. Is that is that the lead in here? Well, I think everyone should, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, it, it was rather an embarrassing moment. I, I met you at, I think, IPAC in Atlanta. This is like 10 years ago. Okay. It, uh-huh. it, it was in the hospitality suite and they had like free alcohol and I was a grad student and like, you know, that's awesome. You know, how are you going to turn that sure, down? Sure, yeah. Grad student? And I remember talking to you and I was like, oh man, I probably should not have done that. <laughs> but it's it's nice to reconnect, definitely. Yeah, yeah, likewise. I see your <laughs> Zoom uh, name here says Scotty. So maybe I'll call you Scotty. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay. That, that's It's kind of a running joke. That's how you know you're part of the inner circle. So you've already made it to uh, the inner realm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Your friendly side is showing here on Zoom, Scotty. well fred i i actually probably have an equally forgettable way that we met as well which i I don't think you know about either we we met when i was in graduate school as well but it was on an airplane Uh, do you remember this (laughs) go on please (laughs) (laughs) so it was this this shows how stupid i was at the time um, I'm sitting next to you on an airplane and I think you saw like something that I had like in my hand or something that indicated I was psychology and you were like oh what's that and of course me I'm like dreading this moment because now I had to explain what I was psychology is to a stranger <laughs> and little did I know it's like Fred Oswald is sitting next to me on this plane but I'm trying to explain what I was psychology is to Fred Oswald like an idiot and oh, luckily yeah, I didn't, I didn't even ask you to stop, right? I made you go through the pains. <laughs> no, you made me no. get all the way through it. Luckily, <laughs> there was actually another guy on the other side of me who was also an psychologist on the way to PSYOP who bailed me out. And then you guys had a good conversation and I just sat there like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. But like the rest of the flight. No, no, you got you to gotta start somewhere. And uh, you know what? Um, we're all still figuring things out, aren't we? As we'll talk about today. It, I it still haven't worse. figured it out. I, I have not figured out how to talk about our psychology to strangers and to this day. Well, maybe that was what Fred was doing. Like, it's great to hear other people explain their opinion of what IO psychology uh, constitutes. My, my, my mother still calls it, I do the I and the O. So, I mean, that's a, that's a basis. My, my parents, a- even in a Christmas card one time, they said Cole is very involved in PSYOP but they spelled it like <laughs> psychological operations, like psyops, psyops. that the military <laughs> does in other countries. And I was like, wow, people think <clears throat> I'm in like the CIA or something. You, you could be very involved in that. <laughs> Probably, but it's not necessarily something that's desirable, I would say. Going into countries and destabilizing their governments and stuff. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't think I'm too keen that. on that. Yeah, I got to say, my parents never really knew or uh, my dad still my mom passed away my dad's still alive that doesn't really they don't really know what I do you know Um, (laughs) but I think to your point Scotty um, you know it's a skill to uh, be able to explain what we do to friends family and um, you know those who we should connect with well I mean like from from a uh, like I guess like the starting point how do you describe IO 
to other folks. Uh oh. If you were I, sitting you know, on a plane good... next to Cole, like how would you explain IO? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, like a good professor. My my, the tables um, have turned. <laughs> I'll say, um, you know, I would say it depends, um, oh, and nice. kind of get a feel for where they're coming from because I think you can connect at the at the level of um, workforce. You know, um, it could be that I mean every most people have jobs who are uh, adults or, or know what jobs are, it turns out. And um, so being able to relate um, at their own level to get the conversation started around jobs and then, well, what aspects, you know, I study the workplace and yeah. maybe they'll talk about, um, you know, coworkers or their boss, or you know, I'll, I'll then ease into how I, I look at, uh, you know, the job applications and the process of selection. So maybe maybe that's not a definition, um, you know, more of a conversation so that they get a real, you know, a glimpse into what, you know, we would call them critical incidents um, are for our for our field. What 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 things do we do actually? Well, I think that's totally apt. Like to your point, like everyone has a job, everyone derives some sort of meaning from their job in some capacity, and it's very broad. Whether you want to go into uh selection or if you want to go into psyops for you know the uh <laughs> government there's yeah, a room yeah. for everybody and i that's right <laughs> there's even room for psyops um but there's also room for psyop uh you know for <laughs> for those um who are who who may appear really interested we could refer them to the psyop website and explore what's on there and, um, you know, even go to the, uh, the program uh, for the conference to see what people are on, what's on people's minds uh, recently and what they're presenting at the conference and so on. Yeah, well, that's actually yeah. probably a good point to introduce you, uh, Fred. So I, I want because you have been a previous president of PSYOP or the Society of Iopsychologists um, back in 2017 and 2018, you're also a professor of biopsychology at Rice University, amongst many, many other accolades that we'll probably you know spend the rest of the podcast talking about. But one of which I'm really excited about is you're the current associate editor of the JAP, as we sometimes call it, the Journal of Applied Psychology, which is the premier journal in our field. So I'm just super honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hey, uh, the feeling is quite mutual, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's not talk about uh, accolades. Uh, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but let, let's talk about uh, the good stuff. Um, Absolutely. Tell me, tell me what's on the agenda. Well, one thing I wanted to talk to you about today, which uh, I guess is another one of your accolades, I guess we could call it, is mm -hmm. You're on a committee that is, is uh, you could probably say the name of what it is, but um, that's looking at AI at, from a governmental lens. And one of the things we wanted to talk to you today was about, you know, some of the impacts that AI is going to be having on the future of biopsychology and people analytics. And I know there have been some, some things, some revelations that we've gone through recently, but do you mind talking at all about this special position that you have? Sure. Um, so I'm a member um, of the National uh, Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee. They advise, uh, we advise the, the president and the secretary of commerce. Uh, I can't say I've met Joe Biden uh, at all, let alone recently. 
but uh, our report was uh, just released uh, at the end of April. I guess the, the official stamp um, maybe was, was later in May, but uh, basically that, that was our uh, year one report. So one year of activity where we laid out infrastructure for AI along the um, kind of buckets of um, international AI. So, you know, US working with other countries on, on policy and uh, innovations, uh, you know, business. Um, also AI and uh, the workforce, you know, internally, what are, what are some issues we can promote there? Um, trustworthy AI. So a real push behind the initiative in the first place was uh, the fact we need to develop trust in AI at all levels and preserve individual rights and uh, civil liberties. Um, and, and of course, with that comes uh, the perennial concern and, and uh, appropriately concern of, about bias across various subgroups uh, that are already uh, vulnerable uh, in the world. And so it's very wide ranging, uh, very, very sweeping uh, report, um, but focused on the federal level with the idea that, you know, we are advising uh, President Secretary of Commerce, so focus on federal work and then, um, you know, see where that goes in terms of corporate stuff going on outside the government. I, I'm I'm obliged to say that none of my opinions today are as uh, in representing NIAC. <laughs> um, I I am me uh, wherever I go, um, so all my opinions here are my own. But what was interesting about the group, um, I guess, like any group of diverse range of people, you you look at each other and you say, hmm, you know, who are you? And and they say, who are you? And you you get to talking and figuring out where you're coming from and, and where your complementary sources of expertise are. So um, as you all know, um, my area of focus on workforce and in uh, personnel selection in particular, but other folks uh, focus in areas such as uh, the ethics of AI. So folks who even uh, uh, represent companies or actually run companies, uh, that do ethical AI. Uh, there's your Silicon Valley types in the world, right? Your your Amazons and, and Microsofts um, and so on. Um, and then um, there's legal and uh, kind of policy makers, people who are very uh, familiar, but certainly more comfortable with uh, how things run the federal government uh, than others like myself. <laughs> and then other academics, so uh, computer scientists, uh, we have a sort of a, a philosopher slash cognitive, cognitive scientist. Um, I think he would call himself a, a philosopher. So anyway, a real mix of folks where we're looking at each other, trying to figure out where our sources of expertise are, and then uh, coming together around these um, subgroups um, that I mentioned to generate something in very quick time, right? You have to figure each other out Absolutely. and generate a report and do it quick and, and Try to try to do something pretty impactful to, in terms of sending a signal of what you're trying to do, but but also given administrative changes, even even if you know when you're in an election cycle, no matter who wins an election, you're in that cycle, and so that that might slow things down. So no sooner did we release the report in D.C. than we went to the basement of the hotel we were staying at and start working on year two. So now. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm on the I'm in the year two 
group on workforce and um, and working on actual group on procurement. So the idea of how do you order AI for the federal government? You know, and you 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 get a box of AI on your doorstep. How do you use it, <laughs> implement it? You know, what are some um, at least the part I'm interested in, which I think about in other arenas, is how should a discerning consumer like an organization uh, think about AI? What questions should they ask? Uh, whether it's selection tools or uh, you know, which I would, which I focus on, but but something else too, like exoskeletons or um, you know, your your hybrid robot, your new coworker is uh, coming out of the box. Maybe we can start right there. Like, you know, one of the most robust findings in IO is mechanical judgment is superior to individual, you know, subjective judgment. And AI would be a natural extension of that. But of course, there's hesitancy and bias, as you mentioned previously. Uh, what areas is IO, uh, pardon me, AI most applicable to in IO? And where should we kind of like back off and take a moment? Mm, great question. Um, you know, we're, since I wear my IO lenses everywhere I go, I think everything is relevant to what we do. But yeah, um, you, you bring a good question that some areas are more relevant than others. And even within IO, you know, I don't claim to be an expert in organizational change, right? Or, um, you know, leadership. Is anyone? No. I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's that. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it does in those areas and others, um, another another job of uh, committee members is to uh, refer folks to experts uh, present uh, to the committee or to uh, share materials. So um, behind everyone's backs, I've been uh, uh, letting them know about our expertise and, and uh, sharing where uh, there are resources if they would like them on a variety of topics. And so um, I really, I mean, it's a true privilege to be on the committee and um, and it, it's, 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 you know, a real pleasure to be able to make those connections. Um, I have enough gray hairs of what remains on my head to know, to know people, <laughs> you know, um, uh, that, I, that I wouldn't have known when I, when I started. And so that helps me make those connections to uh, uh, inform what, what the committee is up to. But yeah, we have our strengths and we have our weaknesses, right? And so um, I, don't, I don't pitch in on topics where I have nothing to say, and there, there are plenty of those. But then when something comes um, right up my alley, then, then I, you know, I'll, I'll do something. But, and actually this was uh, going back to the first point about us talking with each other and figuring out our expertise. I honestly wondered, where would I be able to contribute and, and make a difference? And But sure enough, even in year one, when we talk about workforce issues and data and um, you know what government data are available in the ONED and Bureau of Labor Statistics and Department of Labor type data, I have something to say about that, um, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I definitely think it, it, it transforms what we're doing with PSYOP as well, because I saw you were a part of this committee, I don't know if committee is the right word, but they put together the considerations and recommendations for validation and use of AI-based assessments for employee selection. Um, and I think you were a part of that group. I'm sure what you're doing with the government probably was a helpful transition there because, I mean, you and a few other like key name folks like Dan Putka and Richard Landers and a few others 
published an article that we've talked about a few times on the podcast about evaluating NLP approaches to estimating KSAs and interest in job analysis ratings. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the future of job analysis is completely automated using AI and these type of things, but there's outstanding questions about how would you do that while maintaining the scientific rigor, while not instituting bias that shouldn't exist in the process, while maintaining our standards for validation and the like. I, I don't know, would you like to talk about that at all, Fred? Sure, yeah. Um, in, indeed, I was a, a member of this uh, committee that was providing uh, some recommendations that follow on to the SIA principles for validation use personnel selection. We were uh, thinking about in the AI era, what reminders, what um, extensions do we need to give our IO audiences when they deal with AI-based tools? And in a lot of ways, um, we were, despite the the length of the the document, um, you know, we were reiterating some of the the principles that were in there. It almost almost like part of it was, hey, hey, folks, go back to the principles and uh, let's remember um, our our principles. <laughs> let's remember our principles and principles <laughs> about reliability, validity, and and fairness and what those mean, and hold on to those tightly and dearly, maybe even more tightly uh, in the age of AI, where um, algorithms are opaque and you know technologies uh, may give you messy data to which you're applying those uh, those opaque algorithms. So it really is uh, a, a different world. Uh, but at the same time, the document um, contains some new considerations because you know for, uh, as one example, uh, differential prediction, you know, if you see whether uh, a measure is more valid for one group versus another, that is, um, that amounts to uh, differences and regression line slopes, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. between groups. And I'll I'll put aside issues of reliability and range restriction and stuff like that. We think about those are clearly important. which is a whole another debate we've had on the podcast too. Yeah. yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, definitely, those are those are important issues. Um, but but focusing on the core of uh, just the concept of measures um, behaving differently for different groups. So it's not only prediction. Uh, but also, are you even measuring the same construct across different groups? So the measurement and variance issue comes into play as well. So the point is, and we didn't answer it in this document, but we asked that question of what is what does it look like um, in the machine learning era? And those are, um, you know, both measures reflecting constructs differently between groups, and also measures predicting differently between groups. Um, those are arguably different types of bias, right? And um, ultimately, we think of bias, or a lot of people think of bias um, in in terms of the outcomes, in terms of adverse impact. But there's this whole kind of system, right, of of how we think about group differences that takes on different uh, nuances uh, in machine learning. So uh, we tried to at least lay out um, a pathway to be thinking about that. And again, you know, when we make advances in our understanding, we need to go back to the principles and um, revisit those foundations because those are built on decades of, re- you know, insights oh, yeah. by practitioners oh, yeah. and researchers. Yeah. You know, like like speaking speaking of all like insights and uh, ideas from researchers, like one of the most impressive things about you is just like how prolific you are as a publisher, right? Just a million different things going out there. 
And it gives rise, you, you'd probably have like a really unique perspective on the open science movement, what it is, what the purpose is, and how it is shaping or should shape how we publish in the future. Much like AI, um, it's a fast moving train. Um, open science uh, changes over time as a function of uh, education. So having people learn what a pre-registration is or, um, you know, how do you, what's the best workflow for being transparent about what you're doing? The technologies for doing that changes over time and the ideas of where and when to do that change over time. So for example, journal policies, journal applied psychology has started to follow open science framework guidelines. Um, but, you know, we want to advance um, the quality of our, our work. We want to keep improving it in terms of standards, but we don't want to, um, you know, we, we understand practical concerns. Like if organizational data are proprietary, you want to publish from it. We're not going to demand that that authors uh, share it. It's simply impossible. Absolutely. So it's, it shouldn't be a mark against somebody to, um, you know, who, who has great data, great research question, uh, but can't share the data. That's just, that's reality. But every paper is a piece of a scientific and practice-oriented conversation, right? We can make advances. Um, we do make advances off of multiple papers, right? Not just one. Um, so that paper may have its limitations, but another paper will contribute. It'll have limitations, but uh, advantages that complement uh, the limitations of the other papers. So. I, I love this topic because like, uh, I, I get involved in these conversations with different researchers that'll say, essentially they'll, they'll take a paper and just like rip it apart, like all the methods and essentially claim that nothing from it is valid at all. Where I, I I get it, we we need rigorous methods. We need to you know uh, make sure we are as accurate as possible. But you know nothing is perfect, and we can still connect the dots between different uh, ideas. And like just because like one study didn't find a significant uh, relationship, and another one did, you know I mean we can combine these and try to arrive at a overall truth. And like it just like really bothers me with the the lack of ability to see. Lack of people's ability to see through this sort of mess. Yeah, I think um, as an editor, um, as you as you mentioned, Cole, I'm associate editor at JP um, currently. It's our job to kind of uh, see through the mess, as you put it, yeah. uh, Scotty. Um, right? It's uh, how do you how do you connect the dots as an editor? There's sort of a, a saying out there that. Um, Reviewers, reviewers are out there to criticize papers and editors are out there to rescue them. And in some <laughs> sense, that's true that editors kind of navigate and try to see the big picture, try to cut through and say, um, okay, where is there a diamond in the rough? Um, and um, how does this speak to larger conversations about science and practice? And right, where's the value in other words? And how can we guide somebody's research toward productivity and and then you have to decide whether um you know the whole idea of r and r you know revise and resubmit or rejecting a paper how do you do that in light of understanding the big picture and you know there's some um, um psychometric theory or you know cutoffs on a test um the extremes are easy right yes um, yeah something, something definitely revise or definitely reject but the middle is hard um yeah. and that's where <laughs> that's where we try to um 
make better decisions. Maybe we need AI as a supplement to editorial decisions, uh, to Maybe. your previous point. AI in addition to open science. I am curious about this just from your perspective as uh, an editor. I'm sure you've been an editor at other journals in the past as well. There seems to be an abundance problem in the scientific literature in the sense that there's very few journals and many, many academics who are trying to get tenure, just trying to publish. And therefore, I imagine rather than a lot of diamonds in the rough being polished, there's probably a lot of diamonds in the rough that are never discovered because of just the pure numbers. You can only accept a, no, a certain number. And so there's many things that never make it past muster. And I think Paul Spector even wrote about this recently and something about like the ethics of peer review. And, and so I'm wondering what what's your perspective on peer review in general as a part of journals and, and some of the gamesmanship that seems to go on and, and maybe some of these diamonds in the rough that might never be discovered? Yeah, um, you all are, are great in asking questions that have uh, lots and lots of answers and aspects <laughs> to it. So it gives me room to play. I think as a you know peer reviewer, um, they, peer reviewers have uh, different levels of um, insights and responsibility, right? So they think about the the nature of the work. They you know um, the substance, in other words, the theories that that. You know, is it being informed by prior scholarship that we all know is out there? Um, how's it doing that? Um, and then given the context that the author should be laying out there for the reader to, to understand and motivate the, the issue, how is the paper providing an incremental contribution? So peer reviewers are looking for that. Ideally, um, peer reviewers have some methodological knowledge. Um, they may you know, it's why you have more than one reviewer is that uh, they complement each other to, to offer different different aspects. Yeah. But hopefully having substance is important so that you know whether some methods are being useful for answering the question or not. If you're, if you're pure methods, that may not be helpful. And if you're pure substance, that may not be helpful either. So you're trying to collect both sides of that. Uh, but then, you know, to your question about science, like how much should we be publishing? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's one thing to look at JP or any particular journal and say, here's the accept reject rate. But what does it look like across journals? So if you look at the global, you know, of the output that is put out, that is, <laughs> that sounds weird, output that's put out there, what parts of it are not making it that should? And by the way, what parts of it made it that shouldn't? Right. And, and experts can disagree on how to frame that question, but it's an important one, not just in terms of the those sorts of decisions, but also the timing of it. You know, um, folks have a tenure clock. Uh, I mm -hmm. when I was younger, I had a tenure clock. Um, and uh, <laughs> and so I, I'm very sensitive to that um, as well as part of this process. And that that brings up other questions about. How do we change the models for journals that don't um, disrupt careers? Um, you know where there's a the the plan is known for those who are seeking tenure. So I think trying to figure out the routes that work for our field um, while carving out new routes is important. And open science, you know, the the steps we're making, I alluded to previously, is part of the answer there. 
Well, I mean, like given given the realities of the publishing, you know, timelines and you know people needing tenure, is open science even like really feasible on a broad scale, or is it like have to be like journal specific? Well, open science involves a wide range of practices. So my take on it, partly it's out of my ignorance out of you know all the options in open science. Uh, but but my take on it is well. Find pieces that you see out there that are good, that are relatively easy to do, where folks see the benefit of it. You know, so it's doable, it's rewarded, it, it, it's, um, you know, and raise all boats a little bit, right? Give people a taste of it. So like data sharing, you know, to the extent you can, um, do it. Um, you know, pre-registration, uh, try it. Like um, I... I have not, most of my work, I have not pre-registered, but, um, you know, part of it is um, my work happened before the open science movement, but part of it's also like um, just getting in, in the habit of it. And I got to say, our graduate students really um, understand, they, they engage in open science, I would say in general, more than faculty and know which parts more or less work for the field, right? Which parts are a little unclear, which parts don't work. So uh, we definitely need grad students and early career researchers involved in conversations around open well, science. They are the well, future, are, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, are there parts of open science that don't work? I know we had sent over in preparation for the podcast this uh, IOP article about open science closed doors by Guzo Schneider and uh, now Bantian is, I believe, how you say it. Um, are there any kind of limitations or deficiencies that we should be thinking about as well? That that paper, it's been a while since I've read it. Um, I actually was a reviewer on it. Um, they sent it to me prior uh, to to publishing. But honestly, I'd have to I'd have to remember I, what I my general take on it was that we need a, a a middle ground in terms of open science in the sense that it's not like we should do everything. And it's also like, it's not like we should do nothing. You know, open science should not be a police state kind of notion. Or, <laughs> you know, casting judgment what, what could be office. wrong with that, Fred? You know, yeah, yeah, as, yeah, what would be wrong with that? You know, you shouldn't cast, it, it's not an issue of casting judgment on a paper based solely on, uh, you know, open science uh, being used or not, because again, as I mentioned, it reflects so many different practices, and we're still learning how to implement it, that we we have to figure out the reality of it for not only our field, but for particular um, types of research within our field, yeah. where some aspects are more possible than others. Field versus experimental research, for example, might call upon different open science Absolutely. practices more commonly. Yeah, just for practical reasons. And I'll just tell you the reason why we we bring it up just to, with just about every academic we talk to, Fred, is I think the replication crisis hit us hard. And I don't really have a lot of prescriptions on the exact nitty gritty details of what open science needs to constitute. But whatever can keep us away from our work failing to replicate is, I think, the mission that our our field should really be taking to bear. Uh, but with that said, I think uh, I think we might be ready for the confusion matrix. Scott, do you have any confusion matrix for us? We have confusion matrix, and like just just back to your point very quickly. Like you don't need to be punished for not following open science, but definitely reward those articles that do. Yes, Put a little absolutely. gold star on the top, whatever you need to do. Just 
highlight yeah. that they are open science. But we have uh, five questions for you, Fred. Uh, I know that you're, uh, you, you've done quite a bit of uh, Big Five research. So these are loosely based on the Big Five. So you might know how to answer them uh, accordingly. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Okay, so uh, how many TV shows are you watching right now? Not much. Um, I got to say, I watch uh, whatever Beth, my wife, has on TV. I'll sit next to her and watch it. So often it's some kind of ghost hunting. Uh, she watches those things. Yes. Uh, she'll be upset that I mentioned that. No. Uh, <laughs> no and you know, I was going to say you were low in openness to experience until you said ghost hunting. I'm like, this guy is open to experiences. <laughs> well, they're, they are they are entertaining. Uh, the, those, those are entertaining, I will say. Um, you know, the news and um, that, that kind of thing. Uh, not, not all that exciting, I suppose. I like to think that you like you just watch everything. It's just like wildly open to experiences. I'll watch anything you're watching. Um, <laughs> put it that way. That's Maybe. more agreeable than us right there. You know? <laughs> uh, well, well, no, no. I will I will actually engage and uh, understand and, and enjoy it too. So maybe maybe a little of both. I actually score kind of low on agreeableness on standard big five tests, which I'm not quite sure why. I guess um I maybe I need to look at the specific items and hyperanalyze. Oh, Fred, come come to the dark side with me, Fred. We come join us. We have more fun over on the disagreeable side. Yeah, are you disagreeable yourself? Oh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> wow. Agreed. There was that meta-analysis that showed that agreeable people have better outcomes overall in job contacts. I like to think of disagreeableness as showing uh, pleasant restraint, meaning that. Um, you have boundaries, like everybody should have reasonable boundaries, but it doesn't mean you, you know, s snap at people or, uh, you know, <laughs> disrespect their boundaries. Okay, question yeah. two, uh, do you time box your task or do you go to your absolutely finished? You know, a little, I'm not hyper organized about tasks. Um, I try to get things done in slivers, like we're all in the Zoom world, right? In between meetings, in between things I'm doing here um, at home, I sit down and try and do some stuff. I, what I don't want to do, and sometimes the strategy leads to uh, first in, um, what is it? First in, first out, last in, first out. Um, yes. No, it's a, yeah, last in, first out is the, uh, uh, suboptimal strategy. Um, you put out the fire you see, you see first. So I try not to do that, um, but try to semi-organize what's going on and then uh, tackle that in between uh, podcasts. <laughs> uh, here's a controversial engagement item. Do you have a best friend in the office? Um, my best friend is uh, the entire Department of Psychological Sciences at Rice. I love um, it. Good answer. Yeah. Well we, done. Well, we, we, we have a great group. I've been in multiple psych departments, and um, I've got to say we are a very collegial group, um, but not just, you know, legitimately supportive, not just smiling faces, but actually helping each other, looking out for our early career researchers. We have a great group, so I and I look forward to driving to work every day. Um, occasionally driving to work, I have thought about people driving slow where rather than being disagreeable, um, I think about how, you know, some folks don't look forward to going to work. Maybe that's why they're driving slow or everyone has their own story. In <laughs> I the like car, that. Right? 
I like that. Uh, agreeableness. Do you try to see the good in everyone's ideas or just dismiss them offhand? Only in graduate students. No, okay. no. <laughs> I, I, I do look forward. I do look for the good ideas in everyone. I mean, we, um, if you're like me, um, your ideas don't always come out perfectly. And so I think part of part of the conversation with people is trying to get at um, the real good stuff of what we're trying to do. And sometimes we don't know what it is until we talk about it a little more, until we're informed by each other. Like my ideas change. I hope yours, everyone's does as a function of conversation. So try and work toward, um, you know, material things. And you might, you know, I, I think part of that skill is continue to engage when you disagree with somebody on their ideas. I think that's the, just the, the innovation process, right? Just collaborating, reiterating, pardon me, iterating on people's ideas, et cetera. Do you get anxious when you're running late? Yes, very. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Even over time, I get more anxious about yeah. that. I, I don't, I, I tend not to, not to run late, but um, if I do, I'm not liking that very much. Uh, we have we have one write-in question. So I asked a tenured I.O. I was like, I'm going to be talking to Fred <laughs> Oswald. Like, what should I ask him? And she said, uh, well, he probably lives uh, in Rice Village or somewhere near there. What's his favorite Mex Mexican restaurant in Houston? Oh, wow. Okay. There's an easy answer to that. But I live, um, I actually, for those familiar with Houston, or I don't know if you want to look me up and <laughs> get on the satellite <laughs> photo to see where I live. But um, I am. Let's um, not do that, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm on the west side of Houston, the Galleria area, just outside the Galleria. So I'm about 20 minutes to Rice, uh, straight shot. It's uh, a very challenging to drive um, on the, as anyone in Houston will attest, uh, to drive on the highways in the morning during rush hour. Your your head is on a oh, pivot yeah. and your your blinker is not a request. You're telling people where you're going. <laughs> so it's it's uh it's pretty challenging. But uh back to Mexican food, um El Tiempo, I'll put a plug in for El Tiempo Cantina. Uh many locations, one near you, and um <laughs> margaritas are uh quite delightful. There you go. There you go. El Tiempo. Well, I had to put you on the spot, Fred. I did come down and you stood me up, buddy. Oh, what, no. What the heck, man? Oh, that was, uh, well, in my own defense, I had a, a uh, unavoidable conflict. Um, but uh, you you keep holding your uh, your people analytics meetings and um, I will I will uh, certainly show up. Fred had Absolutely. to go to El Tiempo. I mean... Yeah, yeah, I had to go to El Tiempo. No, I think I, I think I actually had a family uh, thing going on then, oh. but it was not personal. Trust me. I should have baited him with margaritas. <laughs> I should have known. Right. Uh, well, uh, Fred, do you want to join us in the nerdery? Uh, please explain, but uh, I'll, I'll say yes even before. There you go. Open to experience. <laughs> well, let's let's start out just I guess because it's kind of in the vein what we were talking about earlier on AI is, and I'm not sure if it, it the decision has been made or not, but there's this New York City law mm -hmm. on making employee-based decisions using algorithms. And that's being, it's been debated for quite a while. I'm not sure, again, if it's actually been passed now, but it's got some pretty stringent, you might even argue arcane requirements 
for using data to make decisions that I would say is somewhat in conflict with it. You've mentioned multiple times, Fred, our principles and our uniform guidelines in terms of, you know, they're, they're almost to the point of making it illegal to do any kind of calculation to make employee-based decisions. Have you guys seen this and what's going on here? And I'll put a link in the show notes for what's being debated currently. Yeah, I've actually been um, involved in the um, public hearings they have on the law. So um, I've been to a couple of those. And the reason there's been a couple of those is because they've been so well attended and there's been so much feedback uh, from the community, um, IO psychology included, um, you know, whether it's academics or test vendors, practitioners, um, et cetera. So um, also just folks from really all walks of life um, around the ethics of AI, for example, I know know a couple of folks, um, you know, there who have been, uh, who've submitted comments and so on. So lots of interest, lots of revisions. Um, it would be hard to characterize the law in its entirety here on the spot, but I would say that um, some of the points I think you're highlighting, Cole, are, are correct. Like, it remains to be seen how, um, what entails automated employment decision tool, right? So, um, you know, I think if you, you know, reading law, it looks like if you, um, so long as the algorithm is not making the decision, the human is in the loop, so to speak, to make decisions, then it's not an automated employment tool. So like if you, if you're relying on the output from the algorithm solely, like, you know, hire this person, or don't hire this person, that would be, that would definitely be a problem. But there's also some gray area where, um, you know, it, it sounds objective, but it's actually uh, trickier than it sounds. Uh, where the law says, if you use the output from an automated tool um, and it's one of a set of other kinds of pieces of information you're using, so that automated piece is not weighted more than the others, you're in the clear. Well, weights are a complicated thing um, if you're a math person um, because there are implicit weights and explicit weights. So you might say, hey, this is three times more important than than that, or four times, you know, give relative weights to like five different things. And you're giving those weights and you can actually weight the variables that way. The problem is lurking underneath the variables are correlations and standard deviations. <laughs> and they have weight, they affect the weights. Um, and so um, I've scratched my head over that in the past and um, uh, uh, about that issue published on it. Um, but it, it, it is it is a real issue. Um, so, you know, how will that be resolved? You know, will it be through um, case law? Will it be through more proactive examples provided by the city? Who knows? So, so I think the waiting issue is problematic. I think another issue is, um, you know, the, when a vendor is just starting to use a measure and they don't have local data and um, they're supposed to, there's a provision to be able to rely on vendor data, it's like, well, how do you, um, what types of data should you rely on? And is it really generalizable if they have different selection ratios or different industry? I'd need to, again, I'd need to read the law more carefully. They, totally. may, have, they may have revised uh, that point uh, to some extent, but I, I think it's definitely an issue um, as to 
how employers are going to be uh, complying with the law when they're when they're lacking uh, historical data, and and they ask the vendor to provide it, and those you know being able to bridge the gap between the vendor data and your local situation is of is of concern. Finally, just one more issue comes to play is the statistical accuracy issue. So you can say there's an adverse impact ratio, um, but how accurate is it? You know, what sample size associated with it? How do you interpret that? Um, we've always we've always struggled with that issue in our literature, and now it's coming into this law. Yeah, I think I think a smart man once said, uh, "You can tell it's broken by the way that it is," and uh, you kind of see that in this uh, scenario where it's like there's just so much ambiguity that you bring up, and uh, it's just not well devised and not well communicated. So hopefully. It'll get re uh, resolved in a way that, you know, obviously you want to protect people's rights and, you know, protect their privacy and data. But the, the way it originally came out or publicized, it just felt like so overarching and not specific enough, definitely. Everyone's trying to figure it out. And um, these laws are uh, coming up everywhere, right? So yeah. uh, California, Jersey, yeah. GDPR, GDPR. Um, New Jersey, New York, uh, Illinois already has some laws in place. California had a law proposed. I'm not sure. Maybe it's been passed. Um, so lots of laws coming up in there, and they're looking over. They're, they're looking at each other, right? They're they're oh, looking yeah. at they're looking at the New York law for some guidance um, and yeah. so on. So we'll see how this keeps developing. You know, well, what? can I make one last kind of practical point on it? You know, I think Scott even started the podcast out with this. Like one of our findings from science is that mechanized decision-making oftentimes trumps, you know, human decision-making. And then what's going on here seems like human decision-making, like at least the the premise behind it from what I gather is like human decision-making is superior decision-making. And I'm like, you guys have never met many humans, have you? <laughs> <laughs> like the, the decision-making of humans is often poor and we what could probably it? use some data to get involved in this. Well, then you like to revert to things like nepotism and, you know, just uh, yeah. I, I like the cut of your jib sort of. Uh, Why don't we go back to the feudal system while we're at it? You know, what could go wrong? <laughs> like, I mean, these are silly, silly things. We need a break. So the second nerdery topic, how long of a break do we really need? Uh, and what should we do during this break to uh, gain, uh, uh, regain our fatigue? It's a really kind of pretty interesting study. So it's a uh, experimental study. They, they ask people to complete a task requiring vigilance. So it's changes in computer screen sort of things and like respond to keyboard. So not too dissimilar to uh, writing a doc or like sending emails and sort of thing. And then they manipulate the break condition. So one group, they had them watch a funny video. Another group, they had them uh, watch a meditation video. Sounds boring as hell. And third group, they said, perform a similar but different task. And uh, they also manipulate the break length. So either one, five, or nine minutes for each of these conditions. Uh, overall, all break conditions had at least a small replacement effect. That's pretty cool. Uh, a funny video clip, no matter its duration, one, five, or nine minutes, uh, reported much lower fatigue. Uh, participants whose break consisted of performing a different but similar task for one minute also fully recovered. That sounds implausible, but okay, whatever. Uh, they also reported lower levels of fatigue. And uh, overall, uh, short breaks are one effective way of improving feeling energy and uh, replenishing feelings of energy and attention at work. Interesting. Very interesting. 
So get your TikTok out, you know, watch some funny videos on TikTok. Right. Will, will it mean that employers will tell employees to make their breaks shorter? Take a <laughs> micro break. The negative side. I love it. Yeah. yeah take like a you micro just need break. one minute. He is disagreeable. Yeah. No. I love it. <laughs> I think there's a happy medium here for the right type of break. And of course, delves in the detail of what what type of tasks are we talking about um, on the job? Um, type of break would be interesting to manipulate, right? What kinds of things are you, you know, there's an exercise or take walk break, there's a um, stare out of the window break, there's listen to music break. When I made, when to make a comment, Scott, you, you talked about the meditation one. Have you ever heard of the Calm app? Uh, <laughs> yes, it's just like a collection of these sort of like, uh... ASMR sort of things and yeah yeah, yeah, they, yeah they had they have a series of those videos on HBO and I was like what is this I put it on I'm telling you it might be the most relaxing thing on <laughs> <laughs> I was like I some... we watched it with my children my children even calmed down I was like what are they putting like sedatives into this like geez <laughs> this is the best thing I I, I I've been through it like, because I think they have like something like eight videos. They're not that long. And we've been through the cycle multiple times at our house because it's just so dang calming. It's subliminal psyops right through the TV, right to your brain. Exactly. Pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, um, and to your point, like can apps help us out for as options for easy access to breaks that are designed for us? I think that's you know, in the age of AI, we talk more about personalization. So maybe these apps will figure out the the break that's right for you in terms of length and type and so on. Uh, well, so that we, research sounds pretty interesting. Well, we kind of touched on it earlier. Like I I know you you obviously a prolific reader as well, Fred. I'm seeing like conflicting results on like the value of well being in the office. Like whether it has any effect or whether it's you know great for personnel. Have you seen anything that like like shift your opinion one way or the other on what well being sort of initiatives are doing? Yeah, th- th- this is a little bit out of my area, but I have seen enough work through editing to know that. Um, well-being research is um, certainly alive and well in uh, thinking about it, whether it's from, um, you know, a uh, experience sampling method perspective. So like, yeah. let's, let's get more in-depth data on how people are feeling over time and are there cyclical effects or are there network effects based on who you're dealing with and what you're doing. Um, so I think digging into those processes is really helpful because they, um you know, more closely reflect the reality of work and uh, probably get at ties between uh, well-being and uh, productivity um, that we may not have seen otherwise. Um, Also, uh, I think well-being interventions are still alive and well, certainly, um, you know, in the in the educational literature where you're thinking about uh, a child's self-efficacy and self-esteem and uh, both of those are are boosted by well-being, uh, and certainly true, true in the workplace as well. And where you derive your well-being is um, yeah. kind of expands your scope on what to, you know, whether it's uh, taking a break, right, that could make you feel better, but also your social interactions, uh, getting a task done well, uh, can boost your well-being in terms of the accomplishment and feedback. Um, and contribution you're making to the organization. So lots of ways to look at a, a important topic there. 
is, is a really good point that there are many ways to function your well-being and like the social aspects of the job are a major component but it's not necessarily thought of as a well-being sort of uh, tool as it were I, I had a flashback there for a minute there to uh when i worked at uh walmart um in high school that my well-being on the job there was totally dependent on billy uh working with me in the uh electronics uh section of the of the store positive or, or, or negative positive, like, positive. okay okay good yeah we had a we had a great time um <laughs> You know, we had a great time, but uh, also I, I think our we we did a we did a reasonable job. Maybe I'd do it better <laughs> today, but um, we were kids. But um, I, you know, I that keeps you going, right? It, it relates to your performance. It relates to turnover in some pretty uh, uh, direct ways. Maybe ways we don't research as much as we could. You had a best friend at the office. There you go. How how crazy would it be if we were like? And we've got Billy here to join us on the podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be amazing. We'll we'll hunt him down later. Um, well, you know, what if Billy was not? I don't know if he was or wasn't, but what if he was not a good performer and yet stimulated <laughs> others' performance? Maybe that's a function. Organizational citizenship behaviors. You know, yeah, I mean, exactly. they're not necessarily performance. It's outside of performance. I've talked about this in the past, but there's like a bit of uh, teams research or social network analysis research that I want to perform around like this idea of a glue member, not necessarily yeah. the best glue. performer, not necessarily the energy person, but the guy that holds everything together and like increases everyone's performance. If they were to go away, go away, the team would fall apart. Exactly. This is, this is probably a negative connotation, but when I worked in startups, they would sometimes call those people the mascot. You know, they're not they're they're not necessarily the high performer, but they hold the call. The whole company rallies around them. I like that. I like that. I think they're underappreciated as a mascot, um, I would say. Right. Because like you said, you know, the whole thing could fall apart or your your morale goes away or even your even your performance goes away. If that person is the glue uh, creates uh, basically social transmission. Uh, of what people are doing in a, in, in a group of people. Absolutely. Like if there's like yeah. intergroup conflict, you know, you got someone to yeah. kind of mediate that or, you know, kind of buffer activities or what have you. Uh, For sure. I, I used to work with a guy that uh, played on the Cubs and he essentially said that all the major league teams are essentially equal in talent. Uh, but you have certain like sort of team dynamics or culture that really sets it off. And maybe they got these sort of folks there. The MLB just needs more glue guys, Scott. More glue yeah. guys. Glue guys. Well, yeah. managers can be glue as well. So, like, I remember um, in 2007, I did my sabbatical uh, with the personal selection area of the Navy. Went into work every day, nine to five, very non-academic uh, kind of rigid schedule. Go in and uh, um, Andy Jones, the, the Navy contact I had there, he figured out, you know, how everyone contributed, you know, whether it was my work or uh, I shared with you earlier before the podcast, I, I play Scrabble. Um, he's like, <laughs> he picked up on that. He's like, hey, you play Scrabble. We need to create an abbreviation for this project. So we got on the whiteboard and uh, and did that, you know, but it was just, that's just one example, a, a more humorous one of how he figured out what everyone had to offer in a group. So he really was a, very effective glue as a manager. When I got a question about this. How does one 
become good at Scrabble. Like <laughs> I, I'm not good at Scrabble. I've never been good. And people, you know, I think is there like words with friends or something was really popular there a few years ago too. How do how do you become really good at Scrabble? <laughs> Thank you so much for humoring me, Cole. Um, <laughs> you play a lot of games. That's one way to do it. And you see what other people are playing and learn. So that's a fun way to do it. It's not as direct, but um, you, you climb the learning curve. Another way to do it is brute force. You know, you just uh, learn a bunch of words that uh, you may not even know the definitions, right? Some of the best players are not even English speakers, yet they're playing English Scrabble. So that's brute force. Um, and uh, for me, it was, you know, these days, it's certainly just playing games now and then, but um, it's a little of both, you know, it's like, okay, I got to know all my, you know, two and three letter words or whatever. And, um, as, as the glue for Scrabble <laughs> and then, um, it's a thing there's, uh, you take anything, right. You all probably have favorite hobbies where, um, you have a group of people that affiliate with you. And, um, I gotta say that the group that, uh, plays Scrabble is, uh, a very, quirky group and I, I guess I have to count myself among them and um it's it's you know it's interesting I haven't I haven't played in the Houston uh club for a while years but there is a club here waiting for me XI feels like cheating right I don't even know what word that is but I know I know it'll score oh XI yeah yeah Greek letter no that's in uh maybe Liz will use it yeah well uh the I think we always call that Zai or whatever Zai. in graduate school. Yeah. Zai. Okay. These things are unknowable, Fred. You know, <laughs> they're, they're literally unknown. They were carved on tablets and we're trying to figure it out today. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I think we had one more nerdy topic, which I guess the irony is striking me now that we're talking to a college professor and we're bringing this up. But uh, was the popularity of college is it seems like in the last few years, um, the, the, this is from the Wall Street Journal reports that 56% of Americans now say getting a four-year college degree isn't worth the cost, which is up from 40% a decade ago, which that, I mean, in terms of opinions changing, that is a stark contrast. Um, I don't know, Scott, any thoughts here on, on why you think this? Is, I, I mean, I don't know if it's so much as the, the value of the college degree has gone down. I'm not really sure that's the part of the equation. It's just the cost of the college degree seems like it's gone up so much. And, and I mean, is it the push for, I, I know a lot of employers are talking about moving the four-year degree as a employment requirement and things like that. What, what's your perspective on this? Well, I mean, like clearly the, the, the costs have gone so astronomical that uh, uh, people don't want to be in debt, you know, for 10, 20 years following college. I totally get that. I'd, I'd love to hear Fred's perspective on this uh, being a college professor. Uh, but the, the Internet has also democratized a lot of sort of skills like you can go out and get data science skills for free from Google or, you know, some of these other MIT offers free courses as well, yeah. where without the need to take, oh, uh, British literature, which from a culture perspective, from a little large perspective is very valuable. You can speak well at dinner parties and this sort of thing. But yeah, we might be able to know what Zai is if <laughs> well, we had a better glad, humanities education. I'm glad y'all do. I'm glad y'all do. But uh, it, it is it is uh, striking. And it seems like there's a proliferation of majors that 
are not related to money making. So like things like engineering or like advanced degrees in psychology, obviously we can uh, um, attest that, you, you know, you there is a market for you, especially based on research skills, et cetera. But there's also a lot of things that just don't translate into a uh, livable wage. So I think people are shying away from that. Mm-hmm. That'd be that's that'd be my thoughts anyway, uninformed thoughts. No, that sounds right. I mean, um, the educational landscape is changing in many ways. And um, I think answering this question in part would be useful informed by people who have gone through non-traditional pathways. So those folks who have gone online to get uh, specific training in, you know, coding, uh, uh, you know, computer programming, or maybe maybe technical skills, you know, learning um, uh, electrical or, or plumbing, mm-hmm. maybe you can learn your skills that way. There still might be certification issues to get through that are uh, standard, no matter what your what pathway you took. But um, learning more about those options, I think, is uh, is very informative. Um, I think there's a an issue of kind of a broad brush distinction between the 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 new the proliferation proliferation of ways you can get educated and the number of people that are going down those pathways right so uh, we know even if even if people in polls say that they're not uh, they don't think educate you know traditional method is necessary for education that doesn't mean they're going those non traditional routes so what do those what do those actually look like? Who's yeah. taking the leap and who's not? And it, it might divide along different lines. Um, could be, you know, demographic differences, um, SES differences, I would certainly think, you know, that um, there are cheaper options to get to where you want to go in terms of your next career step. And, um, you know, as we, uh, it, it'll vary by uh, industry, I suppose, but, um, you know, some pathways will get, more clearly defined than others as far as how you follow a non-traditional route. Like maybe, maybe, maybe for uh, Python coding, for example, folks say who have already done it, right? So you can yeah. get this informal advice from peers who have already done it and say, look, just go to this site. You know, you'll get you'll get trained. Uh, it's it's twelve hours a day for six weeks or something, but then you get this certification, and I got a job here, and you can get a job there, and you know, those types of things will, um, are already coming out naturally. AI and uh, generative, generative AI is, is a big disruptor as well. So like if I, if I had a kid going into college next year and they're like, I want to be a copywriter, I'd be like, hell no, hell no. <laughs> right. Well, I, I kind of want to ask you about that, Fred, because when I've been speaking publicly recently, I've gotten this question or some kind of variation of this question quite often, which is like, it's a parent who says my kid's in college or my kid's about to be in college what should I tell them to study so mm-hmm. that this wave of AI, they come out the other side on top? And, you know, and one of my variants of the answer is I say, well, eventually I think AI is going to be college. But until then, <laughs> you know, uh, like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe computer science, maybe it's the humanities because critical thinking is going to become that much more important. But what is your perspective on this, Fred? Your last point is really resonates with me, which is um, because technology is uh, becoming so disruptive, um, you know, a year ago, we were not talking about chat GPT, right? Now it's all over the place. We're really thinking about what it's going to do. And in fact, people are doing it, right? We know people are out there um, advancing their 
work career, or at the very least, uh, writing emails more easily using ChatGPT. So how is that uh, rearranging people's skills, rearranging their time? Uh, they, have, they have maybe more time free. And what do they do in that new world, not just for themselves, but for the people they're interacting with who are also using these technologies? So um, yeah, for education, it's not quite clear whether you're a student or a professor. I've been uh, tracking this guy, uh, Ethan Mollick. Um, you, you know him, Scotty? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. We, we borrow oh. from him constantly. Okay. Borrow is such a generous word. <laughs> we play you know, him constantly. nice to have on your podcast. Um, but he's he, coming. We he's got coming. Him. Okay. Yeah. I didn't get paid to say that, y'all. Um, but uh, he would be, yeah, he's offered excellent insights about education and um, I haven't read for detail, but he, he seems to embrace as an instructor himself the use of GPT, having students do it, try it out, see how it works for them and how it doesn't, and be transparent about its use. I think there's a place, you know, kind of like, like using calculators or any other technology, there's a place for using it, and there's a place where you shouldn't use it, and we're trying to figure that out. And so, you know, Cole, your point about critical thinking, you know, critical thinking will not go away as mm -hmm. AI turns up. And in fact, it'll be perhaps more important, maybe in different ways, um, but AI will maybe um, place higher premium on at least certain types of critical thinking. And so, um, you know, I think one would be, one area that's more or less obvious is the bias issue that AI might be biased, but the fact that it can detect the bias and doesn't, does ignore, but actually detects it, that means that humans can look at that and say, okay, like to the extent we get to, I mean, this is part of the issue with AI too. I'm, I'm a little too glib here, but, you know, once we can get under the hood of AI, get to interpretable AI and say, look, here are the sources of bias um, or potential sources of bias, that's where our critical thinking skills come in and say, well, how do we intervene? How do we mitigate bias? Uh, how do we intervene on it, prevent it? So what I hear you saying, Fred, is we all need to be prompt engineers and AI algorithm <laughs> editors or auditors, I mean. But perhaps uh, that that couldn't hurt um, in, <laughs> in some jobs. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's going to be a skill of the future, just like uh, being able to Google things very well. Or perhaps right. we'll all just go to like uh, sort of like manual careers too, like electrician or plumber. You alluded to earlier, just a different sort of yeah. path. Yeah, it is, um, you know, the skill of generating prompts yourself or like, yeah, like being a prompt engineer where you you work with people that know how to probe the system in ways that um, help out work. So that could be a, a valuable teammate. Maybe AI uh, will be prompt engineers as well. So that it'll ask itself its own <laughs> questions. Oh boy, uh, like going back to Ethan Mollick just real quick. Uh, we covered one of his uh, posts some time ago where he essentially loaded a data set into generative AI and said, uh, find me unique relationships that haven't been explored before and, you know, write a, uh, you know, seven page research uh, synopsis of it. And by God, it wrote, you know, the intro methods. I saw the results, yeah. et cetera. Amazing stuff. It was very, it was very impressive. I mean, um, you know, there are ways that uh, that could be polished up a little bit, but most of it was there. Right. And yeah. so I think, I think that's the point is I think even if, even as we move to, uh, uh, you know, the next GPT, four or five or, you know, and so on, that 
yes, it'll get better. The question then is, is it producing what you want? I actually think in some ways, personality might come more into play in those domains, personality combined with practical constraints. And by what, what I mean by that is um, you need to get something done. GPT does it well in a certain way that'll be acceptable to whoever you give it to. But then the question of whether it's acceptable in the way you would like yeah. may almost be a personality question. You know, it's a it's a matter of style. It's funny you bring this up because I have this exact conversation with Cole over the weekend. I was, I was saying, like, I got ChatGPT to write me a couple of paragraphs. Uh, I, I took my paragraphs. I put it in there said, here, edit it down, you know, kind of change it up a little bit, smarten it up because I'm not a smart guy. These sort of things. And then, like, I got it back and I spent just as long trying to rewrite what it wrote that it took. <laughs> to get back to the original uh, draft, essentially. Chat GPT, the new time waster of 2023. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This open AI's next commercial. Anyway, uh, with, with that said, we I think we've officially gone off the rails in the podcast. So this is usually where we we wrap things up, Fred. <laughs> um, you know they say never meet your heroes. So thank goodness you're not one of my heroes, Fred. You know, I mean, I'm kidding. You're at, <laughs> I, that, uh, that was a terrible joke. The anyway, I actually, mutual, Cole. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. I, Fred, if you knew how much I had looked up to your research, you would know how much of a joke that was. So thank oh, you so much same, for what you do. Same thing. I, uh, I remember. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Well, I remember uh. you from the plane. We, I, ever since then, um, oh yeah, just <laughs> this twinkle in my eye struck you the right way, right? That, yeah. There you go, there you go. Uh, no, y'all have been great. I really have enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for having me. And I will uh, become an avid listener uh, from here on out. It's just been uh, y'all are very talented at what you do, and thanks for uh, entertaining me. But more importantly, uh, keeping our audience engaged. So thank you. Hey, thanks for coming on, Fred. Super yeah, appreciate. Take care, y'all. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People and Looks podcast with Colin Scott and Dr. Fred Oswald, my hero. Thank you for joining us, Fred. Hey, thanks a lot again. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People and Looks podcast with Colin Scott. 